Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about how Googling symptoms makes patients better at self-diagnosis and why computers can't generate truly random numbers. Then, physics professor and author Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein will explain why science is all about storytelling. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Listen, we've all done it. As soon as something feels slightly off in your body, you ask the internet what the problem could be. Suddenly, that slight ache could be a sign of cancer, and your anxiety goes through the roof. Oh no! (laughs) So, for that reason, many people, doctors included, discourage consulting Dr. Google. But a new study suggests that Googling your symptoms might not be a bad idea, and it could actually improve your diagnostic skills. For the study, researchers from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School had 5,000 people read through a hypothetical set of symptoms and pretend the patient was someone they're close to. The symptoms ranged from mild to severe and were associated with common medical problems like viral infections, heart attacks, and stroke. Then, with no help from the internet, the participants were asked to make a diagnosis and decide how urgently their loved one needed treatment. Only then were they allowed to Google. After researching the symptoms online, the participants could make a new diagnosis and give updated treatment advice. They also reported how anxious they felt before and after heading online. The good news? Their diagnoses were right slightly more often the second time around. Even better, the online research didn't make them feel any more anxious. The researchers admit the participants' anxiety levels might be different if they were diagnosing their own medical problems, though. But the one thing that didn't improve with the search was their ability to gauge the proper levels of treatment. That isn't too alarming, though, seeing as three-quarters of the participants got this correct before they ever used the internet, even more if the case was really serious. But the fact that an internet search didn't lead the participants to overreact suggests that Google probably isn't making people overburden the healthcare system with minor problems. So if you've got a nagging problem, go ahead and Google it. It won't hurt, and it might even make you a more informed patient. If you needed to make a choice at random, you might flip a coin or roll a die. And if you did that, you would have a leg up on your computer. That's because computer software can never generate a truly random number. That's not so important when you want to play a favorite album on shuffle, but when it comes to high stakes areas like security and gambling, it can mean everything. Modern computers can do some pretty amazing things. So why can't they do something as simple as simulating a dice roll? Well, it all comes down to the way computers are programmed. Computers follow algorithms, which are essentially just lists of instructions on how to carry out tasks. They're bound by their instructions, so they are completely predictable. Still, engineers are pretty savvy, and they've come up with a few different ways to make computers generate something very close to random numbers, even if they can't generate true randomness. One way to come up with seemingly random numbers is with a pseudo-random number generator. Those algorithms use things like mathematical formulas or predetermined number tables to create number sequences that appear random. These days, the algorithms that generate pseudo-random numbers are so good 
that it would take some real detective work to determine that the numbers aren't actually random. But still, it's possible. With the right programming chops, you could reverse engineer the pseudo-random numbers used to run an online poker game or encrypt sensitive data and come out with a lot of other people's money. Another way is with a true random number generator. Sounds good, right? You could even argue that true random number generators actually do produce randomness. But I would have to get you on a technicality there. And here's why. True random number generators use physical phenomena to extract actual randomness, which they then use to generate a random number. Stuff like pointing cameras at lava lamps and then using the patterns in the lava lamps to generate random numbers. Those physical phenomena could also be as simple as a roll of real dice, but they're more often easier to measure things like radioactive decay, background noise in the atmosphere, or even the amount of time between a person's keystrokes. But that just provides the seed. There are still algorithms involved in true random number generators, and algorithms are never truly random. So, if the robot apocalypse ever comes... Maybe all we need to fight it is just a flip of a coin. Or maybe a roll of my 20-sided die. I do have a plus 13 bonus to my knowledge hacking skill. No? Okay. <laughs> Physics could stand to be a little more diverse. Fewer than 100 black American women have ever earned a PhD from a department of physics. And you're about to hear from one of them about why that's important. Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and core faculty in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. She's also the author of the new book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. To start our conversation, Cody asked her to tell us what the book was about. Yeah, I think it's a holistic view of what the doing of physics is. So starting with just what are the things that we know about the universe? What are the things we're trying to understand about the universe? How are we trying to understand some of those things about the universe purely from a like empirical data collection standpoint and a mathematical hypothesis standpoint? And then it's moving into the fact that the doing of physics is not just about the data that we have, but collecting the data and all of that is a social phenomenon. And so it moves into also the aspect of doing science that is understanding that science is a human phenomenon. It's a social phenomenon and addressing how the problems that plague society also affect science that we bring our humanity into the room with us for better or for worse. So the, I think in some sense, it's a holistic view. I would say it's a love note to physics and it's a tough love note to physics. I say some difficult things about what physics as a human community isn't doing well, but I also talk about why it's still important for us to do physics and why it's still important for us to look up at the night sky and try and figure out what's going on out there. So if we bring our humanity with us, like you said, can science ever really be objective? When I think about questions like this, I think of a Black woman philosopher named Sylvia Winter, who really spent time thinking about what does it mean to define our species? And she came to the conclusion that we are what she would call a biocultural species. So we are biological physically, right? But we are also a species that has like incredibly extensive, expansive 
cultures and plural cultures, right? And embedded in that, one of the important points that she makes is that we are a storytelling species, that that's a really big piece of who we are culturally. And that's something that we see across pretty much any culture that you run into. We do storytelling. We do a lot of storytelling about the night sky and about how the universe works. And so the way that I think about what I do is that I am a storyteller of the universe. Math is the language that I use to tell the story. And I think it's an incredibly powerful language. It's predictive. It's elegant. I am a nerd who really liked her times tables. I love patterns. And so for people who love patterns, math is like where it's at. Like you will always find interesting patterns to work with in math. So I really think about it as a storytelling question, which is how do we tell stories? What is the goal of our storytelling? And so I think the storytelling that we do in science maybe has a different type of goal than the storytelling that we do in my synagogue. I'm a practicing Jew. And um, they both offer me different values. The storytelling that we do in my synagogue helps me think about what my values are as a person when it comes to my moral and ethical questions. And science is, is doing something different for me as, as a story. And it's telling me something about the physical world that's, again, predictive and very much tied into observational evidence, which it's amazing that you can draw those connections between math and observational evidence. <laughs> it's just like, it's super cool. Again, that was Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and core faculty in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire, and the author of the new book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. She'll be back tomorrow to talk about what happens when the pursuit of knowledge gets in the way of the pursuit of everything else. Let's recap the stuff we learned today, starting with the fact that if you or someone you know is feeling sick, then feel free to Google the symptoms. It might actually help you figure out what's going on, although the results might give you some anxiety if you're searching for your own symptoms. And hey, if you have serious symptoms, see a medical professional. Your health is not something you want to rely on the internet to fix. Yeah, I feel like for every doctor I know who has complained about people Googling their symptoms, there's someone who actually really encourages it because they like to see that their patients are informed and engaged in their treatment. I mean, knowledge is good as long as you're not, you know, scaring yourself about something that's probably not likely. Being involved in your own medical care is not a bad thing. True. The other thing is I'm good friends with several doctors. They're great at their job, but occasionally there's something they may not consider that maybe you found on the Internet. And you could say, hey, what about this? And, you know, that can be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And we learned that computers can never generate truly random numbers because of the way they're programmed. An algorithm is an algorithm. It's just like instructions, which means technically you could predict the outcome of that algorithm, even if the computer is spitting out something that is very close to true randomness. We also learned that Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein says that studying physics and science in general are very human things. And that even the act of collecting data is a social phenomenon. She suggests that science helps us tell stories about the physical world. And at the end of the day, they are stories, which means we bring our humanity into them. And that's at least one compelling reason why physics and science can benefit from a broader range of people to tell them. I was so happy to have Chanda on the podcast and she's going to be back tomorrow. But 
I've been following her on Twitter for a long time, and it was really cool to actually talk to her face to face and just see how passionate she is. I don't know. I just love her. I love her. (laughs) She was really, really delightful. I will say that. Yeah. Today's first story was written by Steffi Drucker. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also a writer and audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Google the symptoms of curiosity, and if you have them, then here's your prescription. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. More cowbell. (laughs) Until then, stay curious. Stay curious.